Hi again and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And I'm Oswin Baker. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to something a bit different. Not a hero, not a person, not even a living thing. No, today we're going to be introducing you to the SS Jeddah, a ship packed to the rafters with nearly a thousand passengers as it steams across the Indian Ocean and towards a huge storm brewing just off the Horn of Africa. It's the middle of the night on the 7th of August 1880 and your captain is about to abandon ship and abandon all of you as well. What? Uh, mm. Abandon the people? Yep, yep, Leave everyone. the people? Yep, yep. Oh. I know, you're right to be shocked, Oswin. It's a horrific story and there's bravery in it. There's cowardice. Uh, you'll find money and technology here, empire, race, but above all else, religion. Because the 953 people on board the Jeddah, among them 150 women and 70 children, weren't ordinary passengers. They were Indonesian and Malaysian pilgrims, Muslims on the way to Mecca to perform the Hajj. Okay. Um, it, it's not just about this one steamship, though, is it, Carla? I mean, the, the, mm. the Jeddah is carving a route for us, not only through the waters of the Indian Ocean, but also through the rougher waters, as you said, of empire, mm. of commerce and religion, as today we dive into the mechanics, the money-making and the magic of pilgrimage. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep running with this watery metaphor. And today, <laughs> standing on the shore with our towels and a, and a flask of coffee is our guide for today. The writer, the journalist and the broadcaster, Peter Stanford, whose book, Pilgrimage, Journeys of Meaning, is our very own route map through these choppy waters. I mean, but Peter, this ship with a thousand souls on board... Presumably, the journey which they're taking, this thousands of miles across the Indian Ocean, is part of pilgrimage as well. Pilgrimage isn't just about the destination, it's about how you get there too. I mean, arguably, it's more about the, the, the journey, really. It's right. making the effort to do it, and it's, what the, it's kind of what the effort does for you in taking you away from your daily life, the whole literature around the idea of, of, of the the lone human being walking through the world as a sort of metaphor almost for oh, humanity right. as kind of right. wandering. But it's that sense of, of, of reaching a kind of higher state almost, okay. of locating yourself. So your journey isn't all, all, only to the place, it is to the soul. And with lots of these pilgrims, I mean, the pilgrim destinations are wonderful. Lots of them are really wonderful when you get there. But often the bit people remember best is the journey. I mean, if you cast our minds back to our first episode, Carlo, mm. that was Nellie Bly. Mm. If you haven't listened to it, do please listen to it. It's an amazing story. And she was a pioneering investigative journalist. And in 1890, she travelled around the world in under 80 days. It was trying to, to beat Jules Verne's story. And most of her journey was by steamer. And that's the world that we're talking about today. Um, I, you know me, I like to bang on about... Uh, <laughs> the, the power of technology and how it changes everything, even, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But that driver of human evolution plays a crucial role here, too, because before all this, it would take months to sail, literally to sail, mm -hmm. you know, across the 4000 miles of the Indian Ocean and even longer to go overland. But with the arrival of the steamship in the 1840s, 1850s, the, that journey is cut to two or three weeks. 
And I guess before the steamship, if you're a Muslim and you want to perform the Hajj and you don't already live in the Middle East, it's going to cost you an absolute fortune to get there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You you have to be you have to be wealthy and mm. and you have to be close. I mean, previously it, the Hajj is a relatively localized geographical phenomenon, but with steamships like the SS Jeddah. For the first time in over a thousand years, the Hajj becomes economically viable for ordinary poor Muslims living on the other side of the world. We're in the world of the of the steamship Hajj. We need to think about peril as well in all of this because we're going to do a peril on the sea. We could, there's another hymn to sing, um, but um, uh, sorry, I just there's that idea of peril, which is also sort of built in with pilgrimage from from kind of earliest times, that you are, not only are you putting yourself, you're opening yourself to kind of experience, but there's a kind of, there's a a tougher side of it, you're opening yourself to bandits on the road. I mean, the whole Crusades, in a way, in the um, uh, 11th and 12th century, came about because pilgrims were being attacked as they went to Jerusalem. But some of them actually quite liked the idea of being attacked because it made them feel they were they were imitating Christ almost in putting themselves at, at risk. Um, his risk is really in peril is really important. Okay. You get a bigger high out of peril. Okay, mm. I wow. imagine the SS Jeddah has peril written in large flashing letters over it. Absolutely. So going back to the Jeddah. Remember, it's the seventh of August, eighteen eighty, and the captain is preparing to abandon ship. And this is what a later court of inquiry found. The Jeddah appears to have experienced heavy weather for the most part of her voyage. On the 3rd of August, 1880, the wind increased almost to a hurricane, with high-breaking sea. The boilers started from their fastenings and began to work loose, and steps were subsequently taken to secure them with wedges. The feed valve of the port boiler broke, and the ship had to be stopped for repairs and the vessel then, it was considered, commenced to leak considerably, having shipped much water previously. The temporary wedges and supports to the boilers having washed away, and the boilers working backwards and forwards owing to the rolling of the ship, every connection pipe was carried away, and the engine rooms became untenable and a wreck. Sail was apparently set as soon as the engines became useless, but these were blown away. The master ordered the boats to be got ready, provisioned, armed, and swung out. The pilgrims, seeing they could not prevent the lowering of the boat, attempted to swamp it. The boat was then cut adrift and allowed to drive and partially sail before the wind until at 10 a.m. on the 8th of August it was sighted by the steamship Skindir and the persons in it rescued and brought to Aden. The master and others rescued reported the foundering of the Jeddah with all on board. I mean, cowardice is is clearly there, but it's it's astonishingly callous and and ah. Oh. And Captain Joseph Clark referred to in that as the master, mm. his wife, the first mate, and nearly all the European crew abandoned ship and abandoned a thousand people to certain death. And you know the writer Joseph Conrad, Heart yeah. of Darkness, yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. That was one of my English A level texts, actually. Oh, I think I did it as well as oh, as uh, A level. Yeah. Okay. So Conrad has four books in the Modern Library list of 100 greatest novels of the 20th century. And one of those is Lord Jim. And it's the story of the first mate on a steamship, the SS Patna, which is ferrying pilgrims on the hard. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, um, I I imagine he abandons ship. He does. But here's the thing. The fictional Patna doesn't sink. The ship is towed safely into port. 
And the story of Lord Jim is all about that first mate's attempt to redeem himself and to atone for his cowardice. And you know what? The real-life Jeddah doesn't sink either. Here is a telegraph sent from Aden on the 11th of August at 7.50 in the evening. The Jeddah, which was abandoned at sea with 953 pilgrims on board, did not founder as reported by the master. She has just arrived here, all safe, in tow of the steamer antenna. So, so let me get this straight. The captain abandoned ship, tells everyone that the ship has sunk and everybody's died, but the ship is towed into harbour the next day mm-hmm. with everybody still alive on it. Yeah, absolutely. And there was, as you might imagine, an uproar and the scandal echoed around the world. The governor of Bombay concluded in his report... Assuming that his abandonment of his ship without necessity and with the probable loss of an enormous number of helpless people for whose safety he was responsible was the result rather of cowardice and want of resource than of inhumanity, his subsequent conduct in not doing his utmost to procure them succour showed that latter quality. But in either point of view he has, in my judgment, shown himself entirely unfit to be entrusted with the charge of life and property at sea. Captain Clark was found guilty of gross misconduct and he had his licence withdrawn, which I think seems pretty lenient given what could have happened. Oh, that's like a slap on the wrist, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I was trying to fight... It, his licence was withdrawn for three years, so theoretically he could have, he could have been captaining ships um, mm. in the late 1880s. I mean, is, is there a similar thing in, in Lord Jim? Does that, how does that play out fictionally? Well, the Jeddah's first mate, Augustine Williams, he came in for particular criticism from the inquiry. They called him officious and unseamanlike and branded him the instigator of the abandonment. Like the protagonist in Lord Jim, Augustine was ostracised and shunned by the shipping world and he lived out his years in Singapore, where Comrade may have actually have met him and, and heard his story. So it's Augustine who is Lord Jim and it's the Jeddah which is the pap. I said earlier that this is the story of empire, commerce and religion. And so I think our starting point, as with the SS Jeddah, has to be the Hajj, one of the five pillars of Islam. In this verse from the Quran, Bakr is synonymous with Mecca. The first house established for the people was that at Bakr, a place holy and a guidance to all beings. Therein a clear sign, the station of Abraham, and whosoever enters, it is in security. It is the duty of all men towards God to come to the house a pilgrim, if he is able to make his way there. The Hajj is the largest annual religious gathering of people on our planet. I mean, yes, India's Kumbhmela is bigger, wow. but that's not annual. It's every 12 years or so. Every four, because uh, they, they move it from different oh, places, right. and you have a big Kumbhmela and a small Kumbhmela in between. So it's, it's a bit complicated. It's like a mathematical table to work oh, it out. God, yes. Wow. And, and, and the mathematics of this is quite complicated as well. The, the Hajj is 10 days, but it moves around because of the calendar. And I think this year it was in June or July. Uh, over 2 million people took the pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca this year. But I think if we take ourselves back in the past, it's more like 300,000 people. But that's still a massive logistical challenge I mean, Peter, managing the movement of pilgrims, whether it's to Rome or Jerusalem, Mecca or India with the Mela, 
it must have been incredibly difficult. It is. So the authorities, the authorities get involved. You, you need authorities to do it. The religious authorities would have, well, A, they would have organised it, and B, they would have turned a pretty profit out of it as well. Mm. Sorry to be cynical, but I mean, I think the two things are, you know, we're talking about an incident where some where a company built built a steamship especially to take people on pilgrimage and carried them across. They weren't doing it because they believed in God enormously. The people may have been doing it. The people who provided the ship weren't. They were charging them to do it. So there's always been a business side of pilgrimage. I mean, so a, lot, a, a lot of my knowledge of, of pilgrimage, apart from coming from your book, but it comes from Blackadder, um, uh, not know, necessarily <laughs> correct where, all where, the way through. No, I know, but everybody's got a piece of the true Holy Cross, you know. <laughs> And that piece um, is true, actually. I went to a college, a Christian brother school in Liverpool, and I remember very clearly in like year one or year two, whatever they're called now, um, seven or eight, um, people having bits of matchbox sitting at the back of the class and saying, do you want to see? Look, I've got a piece of the true cross here. And at the time thinking, gosh, that's true. Isn't that amazing? And of course now thinking, their dad has split up some matches in the matchbox and told them it's a piece of the true cross. <laughs> so. so, I mean, I, I really take your point that, that there is... There is an element of, of needing to follow the money and, and sort of the, te- the, the, the secular temporal powers have, you know, they, they, they have a hand in this. And the, re- and the religious powers mm. in lots of ways. Um, and actually one of the really important things to realise about Mecca is that the religious authorities have always sort of carved it out of, of, of everywhere else. So although um, Islam spreads very, very rapidly in the 7th and 8th century across North Africa and over into Spain... The, the caliphates were never based in Mecca itself. They were mm. based in other mm. places, in Damascus, in Cairo, in whatever. Mm. They wanted always to keep it separate. They have kept it relatively pure in that sense. They haven't brought politics into it. Yeah. So think the example of Rome in the Catholic Church. Popes were based in Rome and exerted political, temporal power in Rome and religious power. In Mecca, it's always been separated, Yeah, which, which from a historical point of view anyway, is quite a wise decision. It hasn't tarnished the brand. At Mecca, we st- we not, I, well, I presume none of us could go there at the moment. I'm not a Muslim. I can't go there. Um, and they've always kept that kind of purity. And yes, it's part of its yeah. appeal, in a way. Yeah. I mean, we're always fascinated by things that we can't see. And, and again, another of the interesting things with Mecca is we can sort of see it now. So one of the key things on the on on the Hajj is uh, there's the, there's the Zamzam well, which was which has been there really from the beginning of time, as far as we can tell. And then there's the Kaaba, which is the kind of the cube shaped, which yes. is in the in the middle of the Great Square at Mecca. And you go around it seven times anti-clockwise. It, it's a, ter- a terrible, terrible kind of run round in lots of ways and 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 it's that's where they have a lot of their crowd control problems mm-hmm. uh, but what they've recently allowed people to do is to take their iphone with them here's technology we're talking about technology victorian technology right. here's yeah. 21st century technology they can take it on a stick and they can film themselves going round so in a sense you can almost um, virtually experience going around if you can't go absolutely go there and they let television cameras in the guy who does them um, the guy who bizarrely does final score on bbc one football fans called jason mohammed um he also did a documentary in welsh of all things because he speaks welsh fluently of going round uh mecca so you could see it all on his documentary so it's kind of visible but not visible in a funny mm. sort of way it's a, it's it's an interesting point to think about mecca at the moment It's interesting again talking about um, uh, sort of the, the temporal uh, and or the religious power. When we're talking at the time of the SS Jeddah, the temporal power 
was the British Empire. Mm. Um, and it was a money-making machine. It was a ruthlessly efficient logistical sensation. And, I mean, weird, it's weird, when you actually stop to think about it, it's pretty obvious, but Islam was the British Empire's first religion. There were more Muslims in the British Empire than of any other religion, and there were more Muslims in the British Empire than in any other Islamic nation. And Winston Churchill, he wrote to the cabinet once, We are the greatest Mohammedan power in the world. It is our duty to study policies which are in harmony with Mohammedan feeling. And so we're in this really strange place where the British Empire rocks up, strips everything of its resources. It's a place where, for previous centuries, the British Empire had industrialised slavery on a, on a global level. But it's a place, too, where an arch-imperialist like Winston Churchill can be acutely attuned to what he calls uh, Mohammedan feeling. A plate, and I know I'm jumping around a bit here, but Queen Victoria, the Empress of India, she could make a binding promise that the empire would never interfere in Indian religious affairs. So you've got this duality to the empire that it is this money-making machine, mm. but it also does pay attention to what people may be thinking and feeling. But it's more than a duality, isn't it? Because what they were doing at the same time is establishing Anglican churches there bringing missionaries with it mm. as well. So at the same time as respecting things, mm. it was also trying to convert people. There's a lot of fear here at this time as well, isn't there? Because the Indian Rebellion of 1857 really scared the hell out of the British. Because it lasted over a year. Three quarters of a million people died, most at the hands of the British, it must be said. It led to the collapse of the East India Company. And that's where Victoria's promise comes from. It's 1858. And the British are frightened that they're going to lose everything. And it's not just in India. Discontent, rebellion, revolution, that can spread across the empire like wildfire. I mean, it's true. And, and, and this, is, this is actually where the Hajj comes into the equation as a, as a potential vector for, for, for infection in many ways, but firstly in, te in terms of revolution. This isn't just about the Indian rebellion. It isn't just about the Hajj. Uh, you know, this is the age of revolution. You've got Karl Marx knocking around. Um, you've got the anarchist Mikhail Bakunin. Just over a decade later, you have the Paris Commune. So this is a time when nations and states and empires are worried about revolution. Mm. And this is where it comes back to the hard. You know, this is also the first age of mass migration, a time when ordinary people, powered by steamships and steam locomotives, suddenly seem to have their own power. You've got European migration, Asian, Chinese migration to America. We're beyond slavery now. We're sort of uh, 1870. But when you've got a quarter of a million people moving across the world every year on their way to Mecca, that's when the secular temporal powers get a bit jittery. And it's not just the British. There's a clash of empires here. Mecca and Jeddah are part of the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottomans look at the Hajj. They see four things. Firstly, there's the fear that radicals could piggyback the steamship hard to spread insurgency, and no empire wants that, let's face it. And secondly, there's the other vector of infection, disease. In 1865, 15,000 pilgrims in the Middle East die from cholera, and the Ganges Valley in India is conclusively shown to be the source of the disease. And the vector? The steamship hard. <laughs> Thank you.
mean, if if India is the source of of cholera, presumably the British need to do something about that. But they mm. they don't particularly want to do anything about it. Um, they don't want. Firstly, if you think of what Queen Victoria says, they don't want to be seen to be blaming religious Indians because they know where that ends up. But perhaps uh, more importantly, given the business of empire, they don't want to impose travel restrictions on pilgrims as they fear that that will then lead into threats for free trade. This is what Lord Elgin, the Viceroy of India, says as late as 1894. It's noteworthy that he uses the language of commerce to describe the transmission of disease. The policy which has been consistently maintained by the government of India is that as the exportation by sea of cholera from India to the Red Sea and Europe has never been known, elaborate precautionary measures, framed on the supposition that cholera has been so exported, are useless restrictions upon trade and upon the great Mohammedan population of India. And again, Carla, I mean, you talked about the clash of empires. Mm. If the British signed up to the international agreements, which everyone else was clamouring for to control contagion, there were, I think, in the second half of the 19th century, at least eight international conferences about cholera. If the British were to do that, they felt that that perversely was giving too much power to the Ottomans and that the Turks would end up usurping Britain's role as sort of, in terms of what Churchill said, the greatest Mohammedan power in the world. And earlier I mentioned the two things that were important to the Ottoman Empire. I'll mention the other two now. Um, There's the number of pilgrims, and we're in a totally different world here from just 30 or 40 years earlier. Because of the steamship hajj, more and more of the pilgrims don't speak Arabic. They're foreigners, and, and crucially, they're really poor. They save up everything they've got to do this pilgrimage, this journey to Mecca, something that their Indian or their Malaysian parents could never have done. And when they get there, they're penniless, they're finished. In a state of grace, they're literally dying of starvation and exhaustion in the sand. And in the same way the British are worried about Ottoman power, the Turks are worried that these stranded Indian pilgrims would give the British leverage in the area, as the British might have to look after their own subjects, which means consulates, embassies, and before you know it, there's a British quarter. And so in 1882, they ban non-Ottoman Muslims from owning property. They basically close the door on them. Mm. And then finally, there's the prestige. Just like the British, they want to be seen as the protector, the friend of the global Muslim community. And the Hajj is the best and the most obvious way of doing that. I mean, the one thing we've not seen in all of this talk of of empire and and commerce and cholera is the pilgrim themselves. I mean, this is a huge enterprise. This is a communal experience. But above all else, it's about that one person who decides to take their first step on this journey. And so, I mean, to help us get closer to that man or woman, I'd like to bring on today's special guest. I mean, you've you've heard him already. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, too much. <laughs> no, please, please meet Peter Stanford, whose biographies of Martin Luther, Pope Joan, Judas, the devil, have, have brought religious writing well and truly into the 21st century. He's a director of the Longford Trust for Prison Reform and author of a book that guides us today, Pilgrimage, Journeys of Meaning. Peter, delightful to have you with us. I didn't realise I was meant to keep quiet. (laughs) But anyway, here we go. I'm not a silent pilgrim. I mean, we've talked about the mechanics behind pilgrimage and the money to be made from it. But but sort of the magic sort of uh, uh, eludes me to to a degree. I mean, what, what is it that makes someone decide that they want to set out on a pilgrimage? 
One of the impetuses for writing the book was the, the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. And I've done a bit of it, I mean, a very small bit of it, because <laughs> I'm not a very keen walker. Um, but um, <laughs> and I think what certainly meeting people who've done that and, and meeting people ar- around the time as well on the route, there are all sorts of reasons why they go. And interestingly, not many of them are to do with religion. So if you walk more than 100 kilometres, when you get to Santiago de Compostela, you can go to the pilgrim office and they give you what is called a Compostela, which is written in Latin, and it's a certificate that you have done it. What they also do when they're giving that out is they ask people why they set off on the route. Um, you know, was it for religious reasons? Was it because they, they wanted to exercise? They wanted to be at one with the environment or other ones that come up? Sense of exploring history, getting away from the world, escapism. I think you can make them into four E's if you want to. Um, but only 42% of people said it was to do with religion. The others all said it was to do with other reasons. But then they asked them, what sort of impact did this have on you? And and a much larger percentage, I can't remember exactly what it is, but a much larger percentage said it had had an impact on that made them want to explore more. I remember one couple I met had done it completely atheist, had done it because they wanted to, they just retired and they wanted to make sure their body didn't fall to pieces. Good idea. (laughs) And um, they they were next going to a place called Shikoko in Japan, the Shikoko 88 Temple Route, which is a Buddhist route there which is very clever because it's in a circle, so you don't have to walk a long way to one place and then go back. You just keep going around in a circle. There was something about the experience that gave them something otherworldly. And part of that is the, as I said, the companionship and meeting people you wouldn't normally meet. One of the big ideas of, of Islam in the Hajj is that you go there and you're all brothers, um, or brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they say brothers. Uh, but brothers and sisters, there's a kind of kinship that is across um countries across geographical political and economic uh, barriers so it brings you together as one muslim people and i think in the same sort of way you get that on a pilgrimage route so i think that is quite countercultural for people and they like it from from that point of view and i think it's it, it allows you to have a different perspective on the world so you carry something from it it's not necessarily what you went 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 there for And the final thing to say about, we talked at the very beginning about the difference between the journey and the destination. Mm. Um, A lot of people will talk about the experience of the journey. They talk about when they get to the place itself, these places being special places. And the phrase that's often used is they're thin places, where the, the kind of boundary, in a way, between this world that we all live in with all its kind of pressures and economic and political and struggling to make ends meet and worrying about all sorts of things you go to a place where it is entirely different and Mm. I think that's very nourishing Mm. have you done anything like that or have you MK have you done anything like that no never have I inspired you yes yeah (laughs) I feel like I should now yeah Yeah, definitely it reminds me of Anne Seba the historian that we had on in an earlier episode because she retraced um, the steps of the Allied airmen during the Second World War on their route through the Comet Line, um, through the Pyrenees and into Spain. Um, She calls herself a footsteps biographer so she felt really compelled to make this journey and she did stay at nice guest houses and she enjoyed the nice wine but she said it was very difficult. Must ask her for the addresses of those ones. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, she said it was difficult but it was something she felt really compelled to do. Yeah. I suppose it's, it's it's interesting you say about sort of 40, only 42% of people going on a pilgrimage, which 
you know, is badged as a religious mm. pilgrimage, but only 42% of people then said that it was for religious reasons. I mean, I, I've, it's interesting, sort of the secular, secular pilgrimages. I, mean, I, I mm. suppose that I did one a few years ago. I travelled, spent two days travelling across France with my daughter to go to a village in the west of France called Oradour-sur-Glen. On the 10th of June, 1944, the SS walked in and flattened it and killed everybody. They actually, they herded women and children into the church and then machine-gunned and blew up the church. Was there a reason you wanted to go? I wanted to go because I knew about Oradour. I'd heard about it. After the war, de Gaulle ordered that Oradour not be rebuilt. They, they've rebuilt a village, but a few miles away. And so Oradour, it's as if you're walking in on the 11th of June. There are still uh, rusty cars there. There are the tram lines still there. Me and my daughter walked in. We were talking as we walked through into this village. And we stopped talking and didn't talk at all while we were there. There was something very, very different, very thin. And did you think of it as a pilgrimage? So you're meant to be asking the questions. <laughs> no, I, mean, well, I didn't, but since, it is, really. I think we can use... I mean, there's a danger with pilgrimage in that um, in that tour companies now market things as pilgrimages. Mm. And um, so particularly wellness things, when people are going off to go to a spa and have endless massages and whatever, it is presented as if you're going on a pilgrimage. But it's a pilgrimage to you. Mm. And I think <laughs> one of the things about pilgrimages is it's got, to be, it's got to be about more than you. I mean, that's the problem with the modern world. We think it's all about us. And I think what pilgrimage teaches you, and the one you've just described completely fits it, is it's about other people. Um, but I think that the the religious badge of pilgrimage is, is, is a slightly awkward and uncomfortable one. And, and there's a difference between institutional religion and faith, really. And I'm, I'm kind of not massively keen on religious institutions because I think they distort things quite often for their own ends. I think a lot of these religious constructs of institutional religion often have lost their value or they become slightly like um, empty shells when you go in them. They're a way of controlling people as opposed to experiencing something different but pilgrimage I think has an awful lot to say for it you know it doesn't have to have a religious dimension but it but I think they sort of bleed into each other but it's just it's it's about thinking about the human condition and that's pilgrimage I think I think we can use the word pilgrimage much more broadly and, and the book sorry I don't mean this to plug my book but we call the book journeys the subtitle was journeys of meaning and it took ages to think of the right subtitle for it but they're journeys that have a meaning mm. and they have a meaning I mean a meaning beyond I want to have a nice swim in the sea and a lie on the beach, or I want to go to a wellness bar. I mean, they're journeys that, 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 that challenge you in, a, in, in whatever way, kind of emotionally, spiritually, physically, or whatever. Picking up a lot of those strands about the journey, but also about how a secular power or, or, or even a potentially religious power can move in and control a space. It's quite remarkable what what happens to the journey of the Hajj after the scandal of the of the SS Jeddah. I mean, remember we're in the eighteen eighties, mm-hmm. and the case shines a spotlight on the inhumane conditions in which pilgrims were travelling to Mecca. There's a letter to the Times just a few days after the scandal breaks. There are horrors on board such a ship which no Christian has ever dreamed of and none but those who grow rich by such wickedness can form any idea of what goes on in these vessels under the British flag. So the British, I mean, we, we said that they, they, they were slow to act, but they do eventually begin to take action. They start trying to clean things up. 
uh, food and water were already legal requirements, but under the 1883 Native Passenger Ships Act, medical officers are finally required to be on board as well. They're not just doing it out of the kindness of their hearts, though, are they, Oswin? There are really cold commercial calculations going on here as well. Because the 1883 Act also requires all ships on the Hajj to be powered by steam. And that's basically all about cutting out the competition from Muslim-owned shipping companies, which still used sail. That same year, Bombay passes the Pilgrim Protection Act, which requires all ticket brokers to be licensed. Because, of course, travelling to the Hajj isn't just about the ships, it's about the tickets, the accommodation, the guides. And all of that was also in the hands of Muslim-owned businesses. Now, licensing, it sounds like a a good idea in principle, but it's all about who you refuse licences to. And under the guise of concern for the pilgrim, the British were effectively carrying out a smash and grab raid on Indian commerce. And and you want to know the pinnacle of all this? I do. (laughs) You've talked a little bit about travel as a a wider idea and and tourism as a wider idea, but the, the proof, if you ever needed any, that business is at the heart of all this is when we are introduced to Thomas Cook. Mm. What? The high street travel agent. Don't yeah, just yeah. book it, Thomas Cook. Yes, yes, <laughs> Thomas Cook and Sons. I mean, it's a Other grown... travel agents are available. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> there, there aren't any other travel agents available at this point. It is Thomas Cook and Sons. I mean, you, you've made the link between uh, tourism and, and pilgrimage. Um, Thomas Cook uh, had, had already made that link themselves. I mean, they started off with day trips in, uh, uh, in Leicestershire, but by the 1880s, the travel agency was all about the pilgrim business. Mm. Um, they'd already cornered the market for package pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and the Hajj wasn't all that different for them. It was all about logistics. And, and crucially as well, in terms of logistics, Thomas Cook was pretty good at imperial logistics. In 1882, they were hired to take General Woolsey and his staff to Egypt, Woolsey had been in India during the rebellion of 1857. He befriended the Confederates in the American Civil War. He burned the Ashanti capital to the ground. He's not a great guy. Mm. And he arrives in Egypt and promptly occupies the country. And Thomas Cook are at the heart of what he does. Uh, Right after the Battle of Tel al-Kabir, it is Thomas Cook which organises the evacuation of the wounded. Logistics is logistics. Uh, It's Thomas Mm. Cook which two years later organises Woolsey's column to try to relieve General Gordon at, at Khartoum. And, and you know, this is 18,000 troops, 40,000 tonnes of supplies, there's dozens of steamers on the Nile, 5,000 local labourers, all being organised by apparently a travel company. Someone quips, The nominal suzerain of Egypt is the Sultan. The real suzerain is Lord Cromer. Its nominal governor is the Khedive. Its real governor for a touch of final comic opera, is Thomas Cook and Son. This logistics business, it's vertical integration. It's doing what Amazon is doing. It's doing what Meta is doing. And given that pedigree, it's perhaps not that surprising to find on the 4th of January 1886, after two years of protracted negotiations, Thomas Cook and Son is handed the keys to the Hajj. The British government makes it the official travel agent from British Empire ports to Jeddah. They're indemnified against loss. They take over the office of the protector of pilgrims. They're given authority to act in all intents and purposes as the British government. It's, it's the East India Company all, all over again. <laughs> the editor of the Bombay Gazette writes, uh, quote, they promised to have good results. And he wasn't far wrong. 
by 1890, this is four years in, from a standing start, Thomas Cook and Son have cornered nearly half, 45% of the Hajj travel market. So what happens? Things like this never end well. Mm. Uh, you talked about Muslim-owned businesses. They are spitting blood because they are being totally cut out of this, mm. um, as is the Ottoman Empire. You've got to remember that Thomas Cook, they may, they may own the journey, but the Ottomans own the destination, as it were. And, and there and are the, ticket And the Ottomans are Muslims as well, yes. obviously. Yes, as yes. Opposed yes. To the British. Thomas Cook was a Baptist, wasn't he? He was a big Baptist. Yes, yeah. And so, so there, there is religion as well as power mm. here. And the ticket brokers, which are being squeezed out of the market at the British end, there are still lots of ticket brokers. There are still lots of ship owners in, in the port of Jeddah. And so, weirdly, we find ourselves back full circle. We started with, uh, with the SS Jeddah, but we end with the SS Deccan. It's not cowardice relating to what happens to the SS Deccan this time. It's cholera. The Deccan is a cook-chartered ship, and during the 1890 Hajj, 50 pilgrims die on board from cholera, which then spreads onwards to Jeddah and Mecca. And there's a huge cholera epidemic, which is essentially traced back to this Thomas Cook ship. Here's a report from the Melbourne Argus. The cholera at Mecca, London, August 2nd. The outbreak of Asiatic cholera at Mecca is creating increased alarm. The disease is spreading rapidly and the deaths already average 100 a day. Cook's Hajj business falls off a cliff. And Thomas's son, John Mason Cook, he throws in the towel in 1893 and complains bitterly about... The strong enmity and opposition of all the steamboat proprietors and the mass of men who had been associated with them in the pilgrim trade, most of them being Mohammedans. So that's it. That's, that's the story of the steamship Hajj. It's a story which, while it might have the pilgrim at its heart, walking the decks... Of, of the pilgrimage boat, so to speak. It has a heavy cargo in its hold of, of money, of empire, uh, fear of revolution and fear of disease. It's a story of migration and greed. I think from our conversation today, it's talking about the hard that has really struck me. It's something that I've always found so fascinating. I think probably because I'm a non-Muslim and it's not something that I can ever experience, but mm. it's so complex and it's so layered and... It's such a difficult thing to do, and yet it's such a powerful thing as well. It has inspired me, actually, which it might sound a bit cheesy, but genuinely it's made me think, what can I seek out that's different that isn't just for me? I am guilty of those beach holidays and wellness spa retreats. We all are. <laughs> we I all mean, are. Them, but. but it would be nice to experience something a bit deeper than that, and that's what I take from today's conversation, the magic of it. I mean, I wouldn't even think of myself as doing a pilgrimage, but when you put it into different... Because I've always thought of it as a religious thing. You can do it without being religious. Yeah. So now in my mind, I'm like, okay, maybe I could pursue something like this. So yeah, I'm quite inspired, actually. Mm. I quite like to go to the Mississippi Delta and uh, explore the roots of modern music. I could say that I could say that could be a pilgrimage. Personal pilgrimage is it's mm. journey for meaning. It mm. works. Thank you very much, no, Peter. I, I like talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Tim Redman, Adam Brown, and Erfian Asafat. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating. It really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. If I'm rambling, so oh, no, 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 no